Can you hear me? You can hear something. That's good. That's good. How are we all? Yeah. No? No? Rough. No. You can't hear me yet, or you're not feeling good. Uh, you can hear me, but you're feeling rough. John's feeling okay, but he can't hear me. There's a... I don't know whether the two things are linked. (laughs) I hope not. (laughs) Okay, so we're continuing through reading through Acts, and we come today to Acts chapter 8, in particular from verses 4 through to 24. Let's just have a little bit, let's just look at the first four verses first of all, and then we'll come to the the rest of the story afterwards. I'll just read through for you. Feel free to follow through. So it starts verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, the unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So this really follows on from David's um, sermon last week, in particular talking about the the persecution that was going on, the things that were going on. And we see here that the people were scattered. The people who were trying to preach the gospel, they were scattered by the persecution. But despite that difficult situation, they still felt compelled to continue sharing the gospel. The persecution they faced actually helped to, to fan the flames of the gospel as they went. Now, there's an old first-century joke, I'm not sure, that goes like this. Do you know the trouble with Samaria? It's full of Samaritans. Okay, so it's not a first-century joke. It's actually a slightly changed line from Braveheart, if any of you have seen that. Now, the point here, though, is, you've got it now, haven't you? <laughs> I'd like to put a little film quote in there for Steve, that's the thing. Um, but the point is, though, Samaria wasn't a popular place to go. It wasn't popular with the people at the time. The Jews at the time didn't really like the Samaritans very much. But for Philip to go there to share the gospel, it showed the boldness in him of, of wanting to share the good news. It's not something to be kept to yourself, it's something to be shared. You can see as well that um, Philip was able to share the gospel. People listened and saw the signs and wonders that he did as well. The signs and wonders. He went there to share the gospel, to share the Holy Spirit. This is a bold spiritual move for Philip. And that last verse, just a short one there, verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. Of course there was much joy. There was much Jesus. Amen? Let's read on, because the rest of what we're looking at today is really one of the people that that Philip meets in Samaria. So from verse 9. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him for a long time, because he amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, 
and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Let's just pray for a moment. Lord Jesus, as we read through this story, we just pray, Lord, that this is not a story of the past, it is a story of the present. It's a story we can reflect into our own lives, into our own hearts, and that we can grow from it, Lord. Lord, I pray that as we dig into this, we can, we can really get to the heart of what it is to be a part of your kingdom. Amen. Okay. So we read here about Simon, someone who's a bit of a local celebrity, I think you could say. He's described here actually as a, as a magician. Now, I don't think that means he's good at card tricks. It's actually in some versions described as a sorcerer. You read, really, that he's been dabbling in the spiritual world for some time, dabbling in things that he shouldn't have been dabbling in. The warning sign for me in this, really, is the, uh, the line that people describe him. This man is the power of God. Clearly, there's something spiritual about Simon. People believe that he has the power of God. But I think as we read on, we realize that's not quite right. Simon's background is clearly not ideal. He's clearly been involved in these things he shouldn't have been. But is his background a problem? Well, it needn't be. It needn't be a problem. See, Simon lives like us, lives in the time after the cross. He lives after the events of the cross. It means that if he accepts Jesus, he repents of his sins, he will be forgiven. You look at Simon's gifts things that are there. He's clearly a good communicator. People are drawn to him, aren't they? He's probably quite charismatic. Imagine what a person like that could do for the church if he turns to Christ. He clearly has the potential to be a great evangelist. And it all seems to be going well. It all seems to be going well. Simon hears the gospel. He's baptized. In verse 13, it says that even Simon himself believes. It's great, isn't it? Time for a celebration. Simon believes. And it ends. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. This is the question, though. What, what is it that he's amazed by? What is it he's amazed by? Is he amazed 
by the love and mercy of Jesus Christ, who offered himself as a sacrifice to reunite Simon with God, to reunite us all with God. Is that what he's amazed by? Was he amazed by the Holy Spirit who was sent to dwell amongst all of, our, all of us who call ourselves Christians in order to break through in powerful moments? Was his the sort of amazement where he wanted to fall on his knees and praise God? Or was he just amazed at the miracle? Was he just amazed at what he saw? You see, the word amazed crops up three times in this passage. Verse 9, Simon amazed the people of Samaria. Something he's doing isn't he's amazing them. Verse 11, Simon amazes the people of Samaria with his magic. And then verse 13, Simon was amazed by the signs of the apostles. You see, that thing that people are amazed in Simon is not something he's pointing to. It's Simon himself that people are amazed by. So when Simon becomes amazed, he's amazed at the people. He's amazed at Philip and what Philip can do. That sort of amazement he's been getting for some time that he felt for himself, he now just reflects. But he's not amazed by the humbling power of God. There's a great illustration that, that John Piper uses to describe this that I think is just perfect. Anyone who's ever spent time around, around small children would probably have experienced this. And that's, that's the moment that you're sitting maybe playing with a toddler and maybe you're outside and you spot on a tree a robin. Robins are always good things. We, we like seeing robins. And we, we point to the robin, we don't we? And we say, oh, look, look in the tree there. Can you see the robin? And what does that toddler do? Does the toddler look round and, and look at the robin? No. The toddler turns round and looks at your finger, amazed at this, this shape you're making with your hand. Some toddlers even try mimicking that same finger pointing. They're fascinated. They're fascinated by the finger. It takes a little while for them to realize that actually this doesn't mean look at my finger. This means look away from my finger, look at something else, something more amazing than my finger that's over there on the tree, the robin. We see here that Simon is not looking at what is amazing, he's looking at the end of the finger. You see, he seems enthralled by what he sees, doesn't he? He seems enthralled by what's going on around him. For a long time, he'd been known as the magician, performing miracles, but then all of a sudden, Philip's got to adjust to this new world, this new world that there's something greater. The people are no longer interested in Simon and his magic. They're interested in Jesus. And he finds that hard. He wants a part of it, doesn't he? He wants a part of this, this, this magic that he sees. It's the wrong reason to be involved, isn't it? It's the wrong reason that Simon is becoming involved. What is it he's motivated by? Let me just have some water. Motivated by water. Hmm. And I'll share you with, with you an example of being motivated by the wrong thing. It's something that happened to me at work this week, actually. This was my manager at the beginning of the week came to me. There was a meeting on Thursday. So he came to tell me about this meeting 
an all-day meeting. We're getting lots of people from other offices, some people from Europe. They're coming across, and we're going to give them a nice all-day briefing on what's going on, an update on things. My manager said to me, this meeting, I need you there all day. Now, what do you think my reaction to being told I had to go to this meeting all day long was? Do you think my reaction was, oh, good, oh, good, a meeting all day long? Is there anything I can do for this meeting? Do you think my, me my reaction was, oh, man, not an all-day meeting. I've got work to do. I can't, I can't spend a whole day sitting in a meeting room. Well, my reaction was neither of these things. My reaction was, is there a lunch provided? <laughs> you see, my motivation for going to that meeting was entirely wrong. I'm pleased to report there was a lunch provided. Very nice sandwiches. Lovely it was. But it was completely the wrong reason to be going to that meeting, wasn't it? Completely the wrong motivation. Have a think for a moment about why you came to Beacon Church today, what you're doing here. What was your motivation for coming today? You could go to another church, couldn't you? If you want to go to church, there's other churches you could go to. You don't have to come here. So what is your motivation? Is it, is it the songs we sing? You know, we, we don't have the traditional hymns on a church organ. We, we have some guitars, some drums. It's a different style of worship, isn't it? It's a different, different way. Maybe, maybe that's why you came. Maybe you like that sort of thing. But hopefully that's not the reason you came to church, because of the songs, because of the guitars, because of the drums. That, that shouldn't be the reason, should it? Maybe you came today because, because you, you wanted to see your friends. Maybe that's what you do on a Sunday. You, you, you come here on a Sunday, that's what you do. I mean, these are all good reasons to come along, don't get me wrong. But it shouldn't be the reason you came, should it? It shouldn't be the reason you came to church today. We should come to church in order to praise and worship God. We should come because we want to get stuck deeper into his word and learn more about his kingdom. That should be our motivation. It's so easy to be distracted, though, isn't it, for other things to get in the way. We all have blind spots, don't we? We all have blind spots, things that, that drag us different ways. I mean, have a look at Simon. What... What was his reason for being involved in the church in Samaria? It wasn't the right reason, was it? What was it that made him want to be a part of that church? He wanted to be a church, in, involved in that church in Samaria in order to perform the signs and, and wonders like the others. He'd spent so long being that person that people came to see, he wanted more of that. He wanted more of it. People had found the truth. And Simon was no longer considered the great one. Now, when Peter came, Simon actually offered him money. He offered him money, didn't he, to, to have the same powers that they had. I mean, perhaps Simon thought this was the right thing to do. He couldn't see his blind spots, could he? They're, they're his blind spots, he can't see them. He needs them pointing out. Fortunately, Peter was able to see the blind spots. And let's be honest... Peter doesn't really hold back, does he, in his rebuke? Now, it's worth considering that for a moment, the rebuke. Is it that, that Peter's having a bit of a bad day? He's walked a long way to get Samaria, his feet are sore, and he's just a bit grumpy. 
Maybe he doesn't really like being there at all. He didn't want to go to Samaria. He had, he had his heart set on something else. That's not the reason that, that Peter lays in heavy with Simon. The reason he goes in heavy is because this is important. Simon's heart is important. Where Simon's heart is being drawn is important. So what is it that Peter highlights? I mean, you'll remember maybe last time I was here preaching, I was talking about that, about a heart-based faith, about the importance of that. Well, that's what he points out here. Peter is pointing out that Simon's heart is not right before God. He's stuck, isn't he? He's stuck with the desires of man. He wants the powers of the Holy Spirit for his own glory, for his own fame. He believes it's something that can be bought. Ultimately, he is not seeking the Holy Spirit in order to glorify the Father. That's not his motivation. Peter goes on to point out that Simon's heart is full of bitterness. That's jealousy. He's jealous that these other people have come in and have taken away his, his livelihood, his job. And he, he's jealous of that, that people are doing something better than he does. Peter points out that, that Simon is in the bond of iniquity, that bond in Simon's heart that's, that's holding him back from truly embracing God's kingdom. I wonder if we looked hard at ourselves, whether we'd maybe all have a little bit of Simon in us, lurking, a bond that's, that's pulling us towards the things of man and away from the things of God. Because that's what this story is here for. It's a, it's a warning sign. It's a warning sign to us all not to be drawn to the, the shiny lights, the sparkling things of man, but to be drawn to the true glory of God. Just have a moment. Have a think. Where does your heart get pulled? Where is it that you're being, that you get lost to? I mentioned before, didn't I, about, about Simon's gifts. I mentioned about his personality and how that could be great for the church if only he turned to Christ. He seems to have the potential to be a great evangelist. And we all have a gifting. We all have a gifting in different ways, for different things. And these gifts, whatever they are that we all have, they should be used for God's kingdom. I think that's what Jesus teaches us, isn't it, in the, the parable of the talents, that what we're given, we should make the most of. Don't hide it away. Don't bury it away, but use it for the glory of God. Reading this story, there's a, uh, a part of me that relates very strongly to Simon. I mean, I'm no magician, don't get me wrong, I'm not a magician, but for the last five or six years, I have been a part-time jester. Now, some of you are aware of that, but that little, that little job of mine was, um, was to go out and entertain people that were having a meal, maybe a Christmas party, and I'd go on and I'd entertain and I'd, I'd get the crowds watching me and we'd have lots of fun, play some games. Everyone would have a good time. They'd all tell me I had, did a wonderful job, hopefully. And that was great. I was able to use some gifts that I had for that. The way I could draw people in, 
the way I could bounce off the audience. Was it an audience that was a bit rowdy and I had to go in a certain way to get their attention? Maybe they were a quiet, politer audience that liked to watch and clap politely at the end. You draw them in. That was a, a gift of mine. But in that job as a jester, I was definitely doing it for my own gratification, you could say. I was doing it because I enjoyed it. There's a secret part of me that enjoyed being at the front, being the clown, everyone having, everyone gazing at me. And this is dangerous. These skills of mine, these gifts, are not mine. They are gifts. They're God's gifts to me. I feel deeply convicted that, that I should use these gifts to point to God. I should use them to offer back to God. They're not mine to keep, to bury away. They're mine to praise God, to point people to something greater than me. So standing here today, I hope I can use some of that gift that I was able to use as a jester, but I hope that I can avoid falling into the trap. And it is something I wrestle with all the time. When I'm asked to stand here, when the elders say to me, we think you can preach, we want you to preach, they give me a, a passage, there is a part of me that goes, well, good, I get to stand here, and look, everyone's looking at me. I'm in my comfort zone. I like this. Don't look at my finger, though. Don't. As wonderful a finger as it is. I hope that I can use my gifts to glorify God and not myself. I hope we can all do that with whatever gifts we have. <clears throat> Excuse me. Too much talking, see? You see, our gifts come with the shadow side, don't they? We should always point to God, point straight to God. But those shadow sides can, can make us a little bit wonky, a lovely phrase that, that Steph Liston uses that. People can become a bit wonky if, they, if they're not careful. You see, that bit in me that looks forward to being asked to stand here again, looks forward to that message from Steve saying, can you preach again? That I need to guard, that I need to be careful of. It has a name, doesn't it? We could call it pride. We could call it self-idolatry. We could call it a bond of iniquity. Ultimately, it's sin. It is sin. Take a moment to reflect on your gifts, your individual gifts. Just take a moment to think about the shadow side that those gifts can have. Because it's there. We all have that. You see, we're all gifted in different ways, as I say, and so we all have different shadow sides, different blind spots that we can't always see ourselves. And these things that are chasing after the things of man and not the glory of God. And Simon here is jealousy, doesn't he? That seems to be what's holding him back. It's a difficult thing, looking at someone else who's doing a good job of something, looking at someone who's 
doing a great job of, of, of teaching, a great job of, of drawing people into close relationships. It's something I struggle with. I'm good with big crowds, but I struggle with one-to-one -one relationships. Other people are truly gifted in that. But these things have, have the shadow sides. Everything does. The good news, though, and this is good news, don't get me wrong, as we dwell on these shadow sides, these difficult things we don't like to talk about, we don't like to think about, there is good news. It's the reason we, we come here and we sing praise and worship to Jesus. It's that if we turn to Jesus and repent of our sins, we are forgiven. That is the good news. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 to 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the sin is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, Peter, in this story, Peter tells Simon to repent. And whilst Peter doesn't hold back on this warning, Peter is not passing judgment. He is not casting Simon away. He's warning Simon, telling him to repent. And it's certainly worth looking at Simon's response to this rebuke. Simon doesn't seem to repent, as Peter asks, anyway. Peter asks, tells Simon to pray and ask forgiveness. Simon instead turns that back to Peter and says, well, can you pray that these things don't happen to me, that I'm not punished? He's far too concerned still on the consequences rather than getting his heart right for God. He's seeking this for himself and not seeking God first. He is a lot wonky, it's safe to say. See, we see in these verses that, that Peter was watching Simon. He was able to highlight Simon's sin. Peter, as one of the earliest church elders, was, was told that he had to give account for all those under his care. I wonder how, how you would react if one of our, our elders, we're all in this room now, if one of our elders pulled you to one side and rebuked you in the way that Peter does here, says what you're doing is sinful and it needs to stop, how would you take that? Would you take that with the love of someone who is watching your soul, preparing you for Christ? Or would you get defensive? Would you, would you go home grumbling to yourself? Would you think, no, oh, I'm going to go and have a word, you know, this isn't right. Would you sit there stewing on it? Would you, would you write an email to the other elders saying how badly you'd been treated? Or would you take it to heart? Would you reflect? Would you examine your heart? Would you repent? Would you draw closer to God? You see, we should all have someone we trust. We should all have people close to us, someone we're accountable to, someone who will rebuke us with the same love that Peter rebukes Simon with here. The fascinating thing for me in this passage is what Peter's saying there. He's ultimately saying that 
that Simon is drawing towards the things of man and not the things of God. But Peter's an interesting character, isn't he? We, we read about him when Jesus was on earth, and we see that Peter actually is the one that quite often puts his foot in it. He's the one that quite often gets things wrong. He speaks very quickly, and he thinks maybe a little slower than he should. Something else I see myself in. You see, in this story, in Acts 8, we see that Peter is able to point out where Simon is going wrong, and he's able to do that because of what Jesus said to Peter. There's a story in Matthew 16 where you know, Jesus has just bigged up Peter, one of his closest apostles, just bigged him up saying that you are the rock that I'm going to build my church on. Wonderful accolade, wonderful praise to give Peter. And then, then Jesus goes on, doesn't he? He goes on to explain that, that he's going to be dying soon, he's going to be on the cross soon, that he's going to be leaving them. Peter doesn't like this. He pulls Jesus to one side and says, we can't have this. We can't have this. And, and what does Jesus say to this person he's just given this, this, wonderful, this wonderful thing to? What does Jesus then say? Well, he turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, he goes on. For you are setting your mind on the, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but of the things of man. You see, Jesus, in his love for Peter, in rebuking Peter for where he was going wrong, wrong, helped Peter to grow, helped Peter to go on and share the gospel and point out where other people were going wrong. So if someone rebukes you, someone corrects you where you're going wrong, take it as love, take it that they want you to grow. They want to see the gospel shared further and wider. It's important to make sure that you have someone you're accountable to, someone that is able to see your blind spots, someone who is able to speak into them. You see, for heart change to happen, we need to allow space for the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is not a prize to be won. It's not a skill to be mastered. The Holy Spirit is the birthright of all of us who call ourselves Christians. Jesus promised us that great counsellor. I want to draw to a close now so that we can allow some time for Holy Spirit to, to work among us, so that we can reflect on these things, look into our hearts, look into the hearts of those that we love and care deeply for. But let's not do this in the way Simon does. Let's not seek the Holy Spirit in order to have some great experience. Let's do this with the spirit of amazement, of the glory of God. And what we're going to do to end is we're going to read through together as a church as a reminder of what it is we believe. We're going to read through the Apostles' Creed together. Proper old school. We're going to go through and just dwell on the words as we say them. Remember the amazement of the things that are written in here. And for those of you in the room who have not yet accepted Jesus as your saviour, have a look at the truth behind these statements. These are the things that we Christians stand in amazement of. They point 
directly to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. So as we read through, I reflect you to, to reflect on the statements and read through them. And I pray for those of you that do not call Jesus your Savior, I pray that one day you will turn to Christ and you will make these statements your own. So I think we've got the statements ready to read. As we go through this, I'm going to invite Steve and Mick back up the front as well, who will lead us afterwards through a moment of reflection. We'll read through these. Don't get confused by some of the language in here. Remember the line in there about um, the Holy Catholic Church? This isn't the Roman Catholic Church. This is the universal church of Jesus that we're all part of. That's what we're talking about here. So let's, let's read through. Do we have them up here? Perfect. So, let's all read together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He did third day, rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Steve? Mick? Thank you, Ollie. Whilst the band just come up and play.